good to see all of you in the house of the Lord as we turn to his word. Let's turn to Mark chapter 12. You know, I had to preach two sermons today. Like, I had to preach one in the morning, and it was on Matthew 18, and then Mark 12. Everything is just jumbled in my mind, so um, please be gracious to me and forgive me for any uh, stumbling of my words, or I might say Matthew time to time instead of Mark, so just forgive me for that as well. Uh, let's turn to Mark 12 as we continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We're in verse 38, reading on to verse 44. So last week we looked at a small excerpt of chapter 12 in verse 35 to 37, where Jesus, of course, teaches against this misunderstanding of the Christ by the scribes, right? So as you remember, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and they all come to Jesus, and they test him, and they ask a question each. And of course, each time Jesus responds wisely, we get the love, Lord, love the Lord your God command, and the second commandment to love neighbor. And then last week, we saw this teaching that corrects them, right? That the Christ is not a son of David, but a son of God, right? And that was a really important uh, teaching and understanding that we ought to have in light of our understanding of the nature of Christ and the nature, of course, of his work. So here in verse 38, he now turns to the scribes again specifically and rebukes them on their pride. So let's read it together in verse 38, or not together, I'll read it from my Bible And you follow along in yours. If you need a Bible and you don't have one, you can certainly turn to the person next to you if they do have one. And let's read Mark 12, verse 38. I'll read, you follow. This is the word of God. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses And for appearance sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus. But she out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Amen, the word of God. Let me quickly pray for us. God, we seek the truth of your word, that which comes out of my mouth, not ever possibly be inerrant or infallible. And so, Lord, I ask for things that are untrue to fall to the ground and to be pruned away, things that are true to remain in the minds, cemented in the thoughts and and heads of those here, uh, but more importantly, uh, to be left as a mark on their hearts, that these things would be kept in the depth of their souls, that they would be made into the likeness of Christ through the teaching that we are gifted through your spirit and in your word. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Our sermon is entitled, Two Small Copper Coins. Two Small Copper Coins. I want to begin our time by asking you a simple question. And that question is this, what is humility? I could do a survey and it didn't take too much time, I'd certainly do that. But what is humility? Think about the answer to that question. If someone came up to you and asked you, what is humility, friend? Right? I'm not talking about Christian humility. I'm not talking about you know, an example of humility, the definition of humility. Well, I mean, we could always turn to our dictionaries, right? That's what they're for. By definition, in the human dictionary, humility is defined as this. It's a modest or low view of one's importance, a freedom from pride or arrogance. I really like that last part. It's from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. A freedom from pride or arrogance. 
freedom from those things. Something I usually do in the shower is shower, of course, like clean, but is think a lot. So I've been accused of having like too long of a shower sometimes, but it's because I go in there and I just start thinking for some reason. I don't know why, but the sound of water typically allows me to think a little bit better. I'm actually one of those people that when I do work, I don't turn on music. I turn on like sounds. Does anyone else do that? Like I turn on like rain sound, like on a roof. Um, it's really soothing. I don't know. It just helps me think. It just gives me like something to think about. It's not distracting. Music tends to make my mind wander. So it's kind of what I do. And so I'm in the shower. I'm thinking through these things. I'm thinking through humility. And um, yeah, my deepest thoughts. I was thinking through this concept. And I remember in university at a time when I was wrestling with this idea of humility. Right. So I was on campus ministry. I was serving there. And I was thinking about humility. What does humility look like, right? Namely, because I lack it. Right? I'm not a very humble person. I tend to be a little bit arrogant and cocky in things that I do. So I asked myself, is it easier for someone who does not have much to be humble compared to someone who has much more? For example, a rich person over a poor person, as we get the example today. Or a talented athlete over someone less talented. Humility assumes a letting go of something, doesn't it? Or a lowering of one's attitude over something that someone truly does possess, like Good athletes and rich people truly possess something that they can let go of, more so than those who have less of those things. Think in your own minds of people you know who are like this. What are some of the features of such humble people? Certainly the Bible advocates for humility. It's clearly a value and a virtue within the Christian teaching and within the biblical concepts. We are taught, in, for example, in Proverbs 22, verse 4, that by humility and fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. Riches, I don't mean by prosperity, but riches as in the treasures of God, right? The riches that he bestows to us. Peter 5, 6, sorry, this should be 1 Peter 5, 6, tells us plainly uh, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And we, of course, learned previously in Mark chapter 9 that we are to be humble like who? Like children to enter the kingdom of God. In today's passage, we are given an example of what humility is not. What humility is not. And the example is in the scribes. And then, immediately, we're given, in contrast, an example of what humility is. And it's found in this poor widow. Now, why are we given these examples? Because Christ is continuing. Remember, he was on his way to Jerusalem. Right? Remember, he was traveling south from the northern part of Galilee. He's traveling south. He's going down, right, in, 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 in a sense, to his death, to Mount Jerusalem, to the temple, he enters, and on his way, remember all the teachings he gave us? The kingdom teachings. And what were all the kingdom teachings about? Reverse ideology, right? You think this is great? No. To be low is great. You think it's great to be served? No, it's actually better to serve, right? Oh, you think this young rich ruler has it all figured out and can enter the kingdom of God simply because he's blessed by God in your perspective? Absolutely not. It's not by riches or wealth or authority or might or power from human standards that one enters the kingdom. It's on the basis of what? Their lowliness. It's a reverse ideology. That's why he applauds the Gentiles. He applauds the women. He applauds the children. He applauds and uses examples of shepherds and and, and farmers, simpletons, if you will. And Christ teaches this ideology to these people, to his disciples, because they will be called to become lowly. And in a, in a very real sense, the call of the apostles to become lowly, right? The, the 11 apostles that would institute the church in the book of Acts is really the same call for us today universally to the, every Christian to become 
lowly. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, suck at life, right? Or like give up on all your career aspirations or don't be a good doctor, don't be a good lawyer, don't be a good this or a teacher, whatever, right? That's not what we're saying. It's don't prize those things. You can achieve those things, but they are not your ticket to anything in heaven, right? Those things are platforms for what? Gospel influence. It's to be humble even in such exceedingly great places of authority and power and influence. I mean, consider the example in the Old Testament that we're given, the juxtaposition between King Saul, the first king of Israel, and then the second, King David. You know, in a very real way, David is kind of the worst sinner between the two. Like Saul's great sin. If I asked you, what is Saul's great sin? What would you say? Well, it's pride and arrogance. And then there was a time where he conquered a land and then he stole some stuff he shouldn't have and he lied and he, and he did worship that wasn't, you know, it was normative, it wasn't regulative. And so, you know, Samuel comes and he's really cheesed and he like, you know, scolds him, right? And he's like, this, yeah, yeah, the kingdom is not, I mean, like, you're not gonna be king. Your sons are not gonna be king. We're passing it on to someone else. So he anoints the shepherd, David. And you think he's gonna be great, right? Saul's this like tall, handsome guy. David's this short, also handsome guy for some reason. But anyways, he's short, right? And he becomes the next king of Israel. He's anointed as the next king of Israel. And what happens when he becomes king? Sure, he conquers the Goliath, but he also kills a man. Essentially rapes a woman. He's not so great either. But what's the difference? What's the juxtaposition between the two? Both sin, both are kings, both have authority, power, might, and all these things. But remember that God gave these things and he could take it away. But the difference between the two, and the reason we herald David and we say, you know, we're okay with naming our kids David for some reason, right? How many Davids are in this room, right? We're okay with naming our kids David. You know why? Because he repents. He repents. He understands that he needs to be humble before God. When Saul is rebuked, he does not repent. He makes excuses. When David is rebuked, he repents. It's a humble thing to repent, friends. Christ is continuing to teach his disciples and us today what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. For one day, these men, these these disciples of his, like the scribes, will be leaders of the people of God, the church. And the teaching seems simple enough to be humble. Be not one who takes, but gives. That's going to be my tag for today. Be not one who takes, but instead gives. Let's examine the text. I have two points to today's sermon. The first is the scribes who take. We're going to see this in verses 38 to 40. And then we're going to look at verses 41 to 44. Second point, widows who give. Scribes who take, widows who give. Let's look at verses 38 to 40. After addressing and correcting the teaching of the scribes regarding the nature of the Christ, Jesus now points his attention to another area in need of correction in the scribes. And this time, it's not so much their teaching, but their behavior, which in some sense is a teaching. The word he begins with is this word, beware. Be careful, be cautious, attention. Much like the warnings before a film with graphic material, hazardous labels on chemical products, signs on the road that warn us of upcoming danger. Jesus has already warned his disciples of what? The leaven of the Pharisees. And now he ushers warning of the scribes who walk around in what? Long robes. And you might think, well, what's the big deal with long robes? But long robes, this is an extravagant attire. Like respectful greetings. They want to be greeted in the, 
in, in the marketplaces, seek chief seats, the best seats in the house. They seek honor. They pray on the lesser. They practice piety for accolade. I jokingly say this, but sometimes these sound like uh, uh, adult Koreans. But anyways, um, friends, what Jesus is warning us of, and this, that's a joke, don't, don't record that. Friends, what Jesus is warning us of in the scribes is the very thing he has been teaching against for those that would hope to be in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom is for those who are humble, like who? Humble like children. For those who can sell all to follow him. And for those that are willing to what? Take up their own cross, serve others, love neighbor as oneself. The scribes, unlike the Sadducees, were not men of great wealth. Remember the Sadducees? Those were wealthy men. Those were like noble people, if you will. So they were born into modern-day language, privilege. And these scribes were not the case. They were typically much poorer in their upbringing. So their religious position and authority all of a sudden gave them opportunity to have what they typically did not, wealth and authority. They wore attire, these long robes that exuded luxury. They wanted to flaunt it. Long robes were typically associated with whom? The kings, right? Kings wore long uh, robes of silk and velvet and all these things. Long robes can be compared uh, in comparison to what they call the basic talents of the Jews, Right? Just basic kind of robes that people would wear, short ones. In comparison to them, they would be extravagant. Think of when a bride enters, uh, enters the room uh, with her long wedding dress, robe, garnering all attention compared to whom? All the other dresses in the room. The idea is that everyone dresses so that the bride and the groom are accentuated. Right? So imagine that. It's that kind of idea, right? These men are walking around expecting to be looked at. And they would walk where? They would walk into marketplaces where people were. They were seeking respect and greeting from the public crowds. They sought the highest seats or the best seats, the chief seats in the synagogues. These seats were typically the benches that ran along the walls of the synagogue room that faced the congregation. Everyone else sat on the floor in the middle of the room. And these benches would surround them. And these men would sit on these benches and teach from these benches. They would comment from these benches. They would be visible to those on the ground. From these benches, one could speak most clearly to the crowd. They prayed long prayers, many words. It's not to say, you know, long prayers are bad, but they prayed these extravagant prayers, extravagant robes, extravagantly long prayers, many words, just to give off what? The appearance of high religiosity and maturity. Ian Bounds, a Methodist preacher, he once wrote this, the value of prayer does not lie in the number of prayers or the words or the length, but its value is found in the great truth that we are privileged by our relations to God to unburden our desires and make our requests known to God, and he will relieve by granting our petitions. This is not an indictment of long prayers, but it's, a, it's really a, an advocation for heartfelt prayers, prayers from the heart. That's what God, I think, is seeking. Now, if it happens to be the case that you're in a season where your prayers are long, but it's coming from the heart, that's fine. But these men were pu publicly praying to flaunt their religiosity. And this was just not something that Christ condoned. These were clearly men that Jesus saw as ones who could put on the appearance of high religion, but with no real substance within themselves. 
They were seeking the self rather than the other, allured by the things of earth, not concerned with the things above. And so Jesus warns us of them. And he warns us specifically to not be like them. And how many Jews of this time, could you imagine, were entrenched with this idea within their minds of longing to be like the scribes, longing to be like those of the Sanhedrin. They are being told instead, be nothing like them in their conduct. There's a well-known story that was circulating around this time uh, that Josephus, the Roman historian, records for us in this way. And remember, Josephus is not a Christian. He's just a historian. And so he records this very interesting document in in, uh, in one of his, the book is called The Antiquities, right? And if you can look it up. It's a very interesting historical text. Can't imagine, it's a fun read, but it's an interesting read. And in one of the chapters, he notes this, this story that was circulating around uh, Jerusalem at this time. I'll read it for you. This is Josephus. There was a man who was a Jew, but had been driven away from his own country by an accusation laid against him for transgressing their laws. So this is a criminal. And by the fear, he was under of punishment for the same, but in all respects, a wicked man. This is not a good guy. He then, living at Rome, professed to instruct men in the wisdom of the laws of Moses. So that means he was in close relation to some leaders of the Jewish faith. He procured also three other men, entirely of the same character with himself. Remember, his character is wickedness, right? So they're all wicked. And they, he, he procured them to be his partners. These men persuaded Fulvia, a woman of great dignity, and one that had embraced the Jewish religion. So this was a convert from Rome, and um, I guess she had a lot of wealth. And they persuaded her to send purple and gold, like linen, silk, and, and, and treasures, to the temple at Jerusalem. Send it to the temple, because you're a Jew, you gotta give to the temple, give your offerings. And when they had gotten them, these four men, they employed them for their own uses and spent the money on themselves. <laughs> I mean, that's like prosperity gospel 101, right? <laughs> like that's pretty much every prosperity church out there. The men that were persuaded to steal from this woman in the, um, in the name of religion were known to be scribes. And so there was hesitation at this time in the minds of some Jews in the background, the story of Fulvia and the scandal that came about with this wicked man. And they thought to themselves, could the scribes be trusted? Because the scribes are the ones in the temple who are trusted with the money offerings. So the Jews knew of this. And so to be told plainly that the scribes are ones who devour widows' houses, it's a harsh accusation, isn't it? This would have been affirmation to their ears of both the story of Fulvia and their suspicions of the scribes. In Jesus' words, the temple had truly become a den of robbers. And, and that's what the Jewish faith in many ways had become. And this is not exclusive to the scribes, nor is it exclusive to Judaism alone. We can't just, you know, finger point at Judaism. Friends, it exists in the church today. For we have men today who are unqualified, who should not be on pulpits preaching God's word, who should not be pastors of churches. We have people who should not be elders within the church. Men and women all over this country and this nation, or sorry, this country and this world in so-called churches today who use your religiosity, your faith in God to take advantage of your money, to bring it to the altar, to procure you to do so. And they use it for their own wealth and treasure. 
you know, like, I need to pause here and just tell you, like, it's not wrong for a pastor to buy something. It's not wrong, right? But there's this really gray line, a dotted line, that I think just shouldn't be crossed. Like, I think it's really obvious when someone is being unwise. Not conscious of the public um, opinion on them. For a pastor's position is to be, you know, not just, you know, live in poverty. I don't agree with that either, right? Some people will say, oh, pastors should just live in poverty. I don't agree with that either. I'm not advocating for my life to be not poverty-based, but I don't think that's right either. I think we should actually take care of our ministers, right? So that they can have like an average life, so to speak. But to be above and beyond the congregants, I think that's troubling, isn't it? It's troubling for me. And one of my like really like guilty pleasures is I go on YouTube and I watch all these like liberal churches with like prosperity gospel preachers. And I'm like, dang. Sometimes I I joke in my mind. I'm like, oh, maybe I should have gone to that denomination. (laughs) Right? It's, It's kind of a joke, isn't it? You read a text like this and I don't understand how that pastor, if they're truly a believer and if they truly read their Bible, how they could possibly conclude that this lifestyle is acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. All this to say, if I ever drive a Lamborghini to church, just slap me in the face, please, with a Bible. Like, seriously. Just like, pop, right in my face. You heathen, right? You've turned this place into a den of robbers. You devour widows' houses, that's what you should yell at me. That's what these men had done. It's not exclusive to the men of this time and to men of Judaism. It exists in the Christian faith today. So you need to be careful because such men seek self-recognition, profit, fame, and power. No wonder the world hears priest and pastor and what they think is not the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. They think of scandal, They think of theft, they think of prosperity, they think of people who take advantage of the poor, they think of sexual misconduct, and they think of things such as these. I have a coworker who I, you know, talk frequently about religion with, um, and, you know, he jokingly says, well, you know what pastors they're known for? He always says that. And uh, I always have to correct him, like, yeah, that, that, Specific case, that's not a pastor, that's a Catholic priest. (laughs) That's a a different one, man. I always have to differentiate those things for him. But not to, you know, not to bag on the Catholics, but you know what I mean, right? There's no distinction in the atheist's mind. Religious leader, scandal, right? It is no wonder, friends, why, at least in this church, we need to make sure whoever's preaching up here is qualified. And when they're up here, and when they're in this position, you have to hold them accountable. You do. A lot of times we kind of think in our sort of Asian mindsets that like it's the pastor who dictates and disciplines you alone. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. 
I need your help, and I think you need mine. You have to hold me accountable. These are not things I want the title pastor to hold definition to. Jesus says this, though, as to such men will come greater condemnation. So let us be warned of the leaders we choose to stand under. Let us be weary in holding them accountable. Let us be caring and tender in tending to their weaknesses so that they would not fall. The scribes were ones who longed to take for themselves. They sought to take, so much so that the threat of Jesus was a life they were willing and eager to take. They took so much they were willing to take his life. But instead of such men who take, Jesus says to instead, look, look over there to that treasury and see this widow who does not take but gives her all. So that's the second point. The widows who give. Now as he finished his teaching and warning on the scribes, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. And the treasury of the temple was where all sorts of offerings and funds were kept by the temple priests in accordance with the Levitical law. Now, it just so happens that the treasury was also in the court of the women, right? It just happened to be there where the women would come and pray. Now, if you recall in the Old Testament, Levites were the only tribe not given a division of land in the promised land, right? So 12 tribes, 11 are given land, and one is not, the Levites. And instead, the Levites were entrusted with what? Keeping the temple and serving it as priests. Their wealth would come from the tithes and offerings that the rest of the 11 tribes would give to the temple. And then the treasury, like a bank today or a safe, is where these things were kept, it could be food, it could be, you know, plenty, like it could be, you know, treasures, it could be gold, it could be linen, it could be a bunch of things. So during Jesus' time, people would come to the temple, and at this time there's, you know, it's the Roman Empire, there's actual coins now, right? So during Jesus' time, people would come to the temple, they would line up, and they would give their offerings in a public space. Imagine we did this. Wouldn't this be wild? Like, listen to this. What if we had our finance team sitting right in front of you, and everyone would line up, and you'd give your offerings, and they would yell out, so-and-so has given so many dollars, right? Like, can you imagine this? There would be like 13 offering receptacles, all of different kinds, things, offering and special offerings and blah, 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 blah. And a priest would oversee each of these, a scribe, right? To check the authenticity of the offerings given. So they would make sure these, this money that was being given was actually real money. So they would check the authenticity of the offering and make sure that it was being uh, given into the correct receptacle, the correct bin, if you will. Now, the amount of the offerings were spoken aloud, proclaimed, as the giver would state, as such. They would say how much, and they would proclaim how much, and then the priest would repeat, and they would confirm it. Hence, Mark is able, as Jesus watching this, able to record for us the exact amount that was given by this widow. Should we start this as a practice? Should we vote on this? No, I'm just kidding. We shouldn't do this. The widow's poverty is accentuated. The widow's poverty is absolutely accentuated. By what? She is surrounded by rich people who are putting in large sums of money. Coming off the warning of the scribes, it can easily be deduced for us today that their giving was for many of the same reasons of the scribes, out of pride and arrogance. This reason or this desire to flaunt, flaunt wealth, to flaunt and boast of what they had. And they were seeking something within the self rather than a heart for God. Pious in action, lacking in integrity, lacking in that which was genuine. Now, the amount given was two small copper coins. Sounds like pennies, right? Well, that's exactly what it was. It was at the time what they were called two lepta, which were the smallest coinage in circulation in the Roman Empire. Mark gives us the exchange rate into the Roman currency, one Roman quadrants, 
which was one singular coin. It was the smallest of them all. Now, why do you suppose we get such detail on the amount that was given by this widow? Because when it comes to money, our, our minds measure money in one way. How much? The amount. We don't measure the cost. What did it cost this person? We don't look at that. We look at just the amount given. Because when it comes to money, our minds are really, really legalistic. Our minds measure the amount. We don't measure the cost. Jesus calls his disciples, and he speaks directly to them. He says, see that widow? Consider that Judas Iscariot is also among the 12 listening to this, the one who was in charge of the money box, and the one who could not understand later, and he will not understand later, the pouring of the alabaster jar on Jesus' feet. The price of that perfume, the cost did not make sense to him. So imagine him listening to this and then later saying these words to him uh, in a future chapter to come. The same Judas who would later sell Jesus, betray him for what? Coins. To these men, Jesus teaches and he says that the widow who put in two small copper coins, that she had given more than anyone else who had given that day. The reason? Because those people who gave, they gave at no cost to themselves. It's not that they couldn't give at a cost to themselves, but that they did not give at a cost to themselves. They gave from what they could as a surp from the surplus. They didn't give at a cost. But the widow in her state of poverty had given all that she owned. And the last phrase is the key to unlocking this mystery. It says all she had to live on. All she had to live on. That's what she gave. It can be translated more directly in this way in the Greek. She gave her life. She gave her life. I love how James Edwards puts it. He writes, in purely financial terms, the value of her offering is negligible and unworthy of comparison to the sums of the wealth, wealthy donors. But in the divine exchange rate, things look different. That which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalized in the book of life. For Jesus, the value of the gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. I have this really funny story. I had a disciple on campus, and um, he was one of my first disciples at, at Ryerson University. And uh, I was trying to get him to join our campus ministry, and one of the things that we had decided to do as a campus ministry on Ryerson is um, have, like, small offerings from our members. Uh, very small. I mean, we're students. We don't have a lot of money, right? We're not demanding, like, you give a lot. But there was a commitment sheet, and I walked him through all these commitments, and at the very end, it says, you know what, like, what can I give each month? How can, what can I subscribe to, right? Can I give a dollar a month? Can I give $10 a month? What can I give? For the purposes of the ministry, we needed some funds to just, you know, help us uh, do some things on, on campus. And so I asked, I told him, I, I told him this story, this very passage. I read it to him, and I said, look, it's not about how much you give. It's just about the heart. That's all you got to, that's all you got to do. So honestly, man, like, you could write, like, one penny like back in the day yeah i'm that old pennies were in circulation um you could give a penny per month and it wouldn't matter that what matters is that you give from your heart cheerfully and joyfully right it's good lessons you know what he did he literally wrote dollar sign 0.01 he wrote a penny and he gave a penny every month <laughs> literally right i couldn't say anything because i literally said that to him I was like, it's fine if you give a penny and he actually wrote a penny i couldn't believe it um it's not about the amount, low or high. It's not about the amount. It's about are you giving from the heart? Right? It's not even to say go into debt as a result of giving an offering. Like, we're not asking, the church is not asking you to go into debt by giving your offering to God. The church is asking how are you stewarding 
that which God has gifted you with? How are you stewarding it? I had a really important pastor in my life who taught me this. You look at the tithe and you think 10% is really high, right? But what if God worded it this way? You can keep 90. It's, it's, it, it just, it's just a different thought. And we don't, we don't really think about this. We give our taxes to the government and we do it mindlessly because we have to. And as Christians, we look at giving as being simply optional. And it's not about the church taking your money. The church has no desire to take your money. God has no desire to take your money. What, what would God do with your money? No, nothing. It's not about money. It's about are you committed? Are you committed in your heart to be freed from this thing in your heart that treasures money more than anything else? Are you willing to be free from that? Are you willing to budget your life in a way that centers around giving to the church and giving to God for the purpose of the ministry? And can you do so even at certain cost? It's a very important question, and it hurts, and it's uncomfortable, and the conversation is uncomfortable. Why? As soon as the topic of money comes out, it's like, oh, see, the church is like trying to steal our money again, right? I'm not advocating for anything. If you, if you don't want to give, you don't have to give. But what I'm asking you is, are you willing to steward every single aspect of your life in line with how God has asked you to steward it? And it should be uncomfortable. Perhaps we treasure money too much that when the church says, give your time, it's okay. When we say, give your money, it's not. That's not to discourage people from giving a lot either. Because later in chapter 14 of Mark, the aforementioned alabaster jar episode will be told to us. And there again, a woman will be giving all she had. However, what she gave and she gives will be much more than two coins. In fact, it will be extremely luxurious and extravagant, so much so that it will shock those who are in the room. To Jesus, the heart of willing to take on cost, the heart to sacrifice is what he measures, is the amount he cares about. For the disciples, the disciples listening are not foreign to giving up for Jesus. Remember, these are men who gave up their lives to follow him when he called them from being fishermen, tax collectors, and etc. But what Jesus is urging them to see is not so much the moral lesson here of being humble versus being proud. That's one aspect of the lesson, although that's important. What he wants them and us to see is that this widow is modeling Christian discipleship in the kingdom. The true disciple of Jesus is one who seeks to give for the greater good of God and his purposes, no matter the cost, because the true disciple is humble to know this, that all we have is his anyway. Remember Jesus' lesson, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. The scribes sought to take for themselves, to gain for self-seeking reasons, and instead this widow shows us that giving, not taking, is the call of every believer. So what stands out about, this, about the humble? The question of humility is whether or not someone is able to let go of their pride despite a reality that exists. To disregard for the purposes of something greater or someone else. So that there may be greater benefit and again to disregard despite something true of that person. Someone who is deserving of something but willing to take something less. That's humility. Someone better than someone else at something but willing to let them have a turn. Humility. Someone greater than someone else, but lifting them up and giving them praise and encouraging them. Humility. I personally define humility in this way, the despite mentality. I do this despite. To do despite a reality. Jesus is just coming off of a conversation with a scribe who posed the question of which of the laws are the greatest. Jesus answers him, 
that it is to love God and to love neighbor as yourself. That's humility. You have every reason to love yourself. The world tells you, think about you, you first, take care of yourself. Like, yeah, of course. The Bible says love God and love neighbor. Those are the foremost. You know what you're not? You're not your neighbor and you're not God. It's an incredible lesson that we're being taught. Loving others, friends, requires humility. It's a necessary ingredient. Neighbors, they're like us. They're not far from us. Ontologically and on a human level, we're all the same, despite our ranks. To love neighbor, to love other humans, means to say this, that I will put you before me no matter what. That's what makes it so hard. And knowing how hard this is, we're given in Jesus Christ, what? The greatest example of humility of all time. For the scriptures read, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, Philippians 2.6. To be God and to not grasp that, as, that equality with God, to, to, to temporarily take on flesh, to love us despite our lackings, to be with us on this earth despite his rightful throne, to die for us despite it being our punishment, our deserved punishment, he died it on, on our behalf. The scribes are an example of what not to be, and the widow is an example of what to be, then Christ is the utmost example of everything we ought to be. He is humility personified, for he took on flesh and death for the sake of the sinner and his enemy. He loved God, he loved neighbor in every way that we possibly could ever hope to be. God has every right to claim that which is his, to treat the sinner as they deserve, to withhold any grace, for it is unmerited, but no, Christ came. Mercy, by mercy and grace, he died and he rose. There is no one, friends, that has or will be as humble as Christ our Lord, who came to give, not to take, to serve, not to be served. He came to have his life taken from him so that he could grant you life. Let's put our faith and trust in him and love him always and be humble in these ways. All thanks to God for these things. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we reflect on what God has taught us today. And thank the Spirit for his teaching.